welcome to the Wonder Women podcast with me, Rhea Hebden. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Kate Thomas, who's the commissioning editor of Daytime and Features at Channel 4, where she looks after shows such as The Great House Giveaway and Sarah Beanie's New Life in the Country. Prior to joining Channel 4, Kate was a creative director at Welsh Indie Boom, where she looked after winning commissions across factual, children's and scripted. And before that, she developed returning series such as Country File Diaries and Street Auction as the head of development at BBC Studios. Kate's also a passionate Bristolian who wants to see more women like her in senior roles in TV, but we couldn't agree with her more. Kate, welcome to the Wonder Women podcast. Hi, Ria. Thanks very much for asking me to do it. Oh, it's lovely to have you. And I hear a congratulations are in order because one of the shows you commissioned at Channel 4, The Great House Giveaway, has been nominated for a BAFTA. I know, it's amazing. Absolute, I'm absolutely thrilled for, for them, you know, not, not for myself. Yeah, it's just such an honour to be nominated the first year that they've actually had a daytime category. And yeah, I, I woke up I woke up one morning about three weeks ago. I had all these texts and messages saying, congratulations, amazing. And I thought, oh God, what did I do last night? You know, and, <laughs> and then, then realised it was the bad. So um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's, it, it's very cool. It's wonderful. <laughs> Tell us about the show and the tiny Indian North Wales that made it, because this is a great achievement for the nations and regions. Yeah, absolutely. It's made, it was made by Quarel, um, who are up in Snowdonia in Krikiev. I hope I pronounced that right, um, which is a really tiny place. You know, it's a town of 2000 people and the, it's run by a brilliant woman called Shonad Wynne. And she she came to Channel 4 with this idea and I think the thing the thing that really appealed to us about the idea was it's got it's so perfect for daytime it's got such a kind of splashy title and top line you know the great house giveaway by that you already know that you're giving away houses you know it's kind of a dream title but I think you know from a personal point of view what I loved about it is it's a property show that's for renters it's for people who don't have any money you know most property shows are about finding someone a nicer house or changing the house they've already got and I, I love the fact that this is for people who, a lot of them are really skint actually who if you take part in this show and at the end of it um they they might have a deposit for a house so how the format works in, in case anyone out there hasn't seen it is um we we buy we buy two contributors a property auction they have they've never met before they're strangers they have six months to do it up and then at the end the, it, they it gets sold and if they've made a profit they split the profit and that could be a deposit for their own home so it's kind of you know it's got a big kind of social purpose behind it as well as being a, just a really brilliant kind of grabby format so uh, yeah it was we, we couldn't really resist it but the fact that it's come from you know as you say a very small indie you know who hadn't made anything big like that for Channel 4 before um, is, is really exciting and I think proves that it can be done you know you can think big in the nations and regions. Oh it's fantastic and I love that because it's such an aspirational format and and you're right there are lots of people all around the country that are renters you know many people can't afford to buy in this current climate so it, it's great that you've, you've got a show like that which is uh, aspirational and they can take part in. Yeah, and obviously we're going again with it. We've ordered another 60 over the next um, two years. Um, 50 in daytime, 10 in peak. And so, so that means we'll be replicating that, you know, hopefully for many years to, to come, we'll be turning, you know, dozens and dozens of, of renters into homeowners. So yeah, I think that's really exciting. I might apply myself. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, my brother so wanted to apply, but, you know, but uh, 
Yeah, no, they've had, I think they've had 4,000 applications for the next series or something, you know, yeah, it's really, really yeah. capable. So. And aside from being nominated for awards, tell me about the highlights of being a commissioner and what exactly does a commissioner do? <laughs> That's a good question, big question. Um, it's, I love the, col the collaborative kind of creativeness of it. Um, I love, because I, I spent sort of many, many years in production, but then I kind of specialised in development several years ago. Um, so I'm a real, quite a development head, you know, I really love working on ideas developing them you know giving notes and I quite enjoy it when an idea comes to me and it's quite a bit, a little bit rough around the edges and unformed and then mm. me and the indie can develop it a bit together obviously it's got to be a really compelling idea in the first place you know um, but those really compelling ideas that come in you just think oh great I can I can get my development head of development hat on here again and and get stuck in and I really love doing that and I'm, I'm probably one of those comrades who even at times probably does a little bit more <laughs> development work than I should on some ideas but um I really enjoy that but I think the question about you know what does the commissioner do all day is really interesting because I think that people who've not done it think that it's it's all creative and actually you know it is a creative job but in any one day I could also be signing off health and safety protocols dealing with legal and compliance issues dealing with complaints um you know looking at maybe even looking at budgets do you know what i mean it's 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 there's still um aspects of the job that are quite kind of serious actually and and, and sort of feel less creative but i also but i really enjoy those as well because i think you learn from all of that and and one of the things i loved about going on to the other side and working for a broadcaster is that you, you you learn about telly from a completely different perspective so I'd been in the I'd been working in indies for 22 years and then you know a couple two and a half years ago I joined channel four and suddenly I'm like oh my god this is how it works you know this is what the inside of a broadcaster is like this is why it sometimes feels a bit like this but actually it's not deliberate you know so I think that what I'm learning from from just being inside a broadcaster is going to make me a more accomplished tv exec I think and if I was doing the job I was doing before I came to China for again now I would probably approach it quite differently because because of what I've learned so I love that it's like after 22 years I've come into a broadcaster and I'm learning a whole new world of telly that I, I didn't really know how it worked you know scheduling etc so yeah and in your opinion I mean what are the benefits of coming from a production background prior to becoming a commissioner do you think it's absolutely necessary um I think so. I mean, it, obviously, there's people tend to separate out production and development. And some people have only done development and haven't done so much production. I'm quite lucky to have done a lot of both. And I, I'm not an overnight success. You know, I, I, as I say, I was in the industry 22 years. So, you know, all of that experience actually really feeds in. And I think it does make you a good, good comment, actually, because you, you can empathise with the people that are making programs for you you know the people who are pitching to you you understand how really tough the, the kind of pitching and development process is um and yeah I'd say the empathy that it's given me has fed into you know I, I'm doing that woman thing of not wanting to say make, made me a good commissioning editor but I get a lot of feedback through my boss about how indies do like working with me because I'm kind to them and I give them feedback quickly and kindly and I don't ignore their emails so I think I think that's that 22 years of experience has given given me that empathy and that's given me a desire to be really supportive of them so that 
they can be the best they can be, but also not be too bruised by by the whole process. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything wrong with being an empathetic commissioner. I think it's really refreshing. I think for such a long time, we've kind of been told that that's like a bad thing. Actually, I think that's our superpower as women that we're empathetic. Yeah, no, I, I in one of my appraisals, I said to my boss once, so oh, I think I need to be less empathetic. And she was like, no, don't. That's that's one of your absolute skills. You know, I love it. Don't don't do that. So. Um, so, yeah, but but also it's also it's also about learning. It's, being empathetic isn't just about being kind of kind and, and being nice. It's learning when to say no quite quickly. Yeah. You know, people, Indies always say, you know, a quick no is better for us than a long drawn out wait. And, you know, I really, really understand that. And I know that it's true. People aren't just saying it because I've been there. So, um, yeah, it's about, it's kind of cruel. It's sometimes cruel to be kind. You know, if, if you give people a quick no, that can be really helpful. And being, and having the sort of nerve to be honest with people as well, rather than just sort of push it to one side or don't reply to the email. Or the yeah, you're decisive. Yeah, decisive. Yeah, know your own mind. You know, know what's a good idea and what isn't a good idea and give them honest and fair feedback. Now, it's, it's always fascinating for me to kind of hear what people's entry point into the industry was. Tell me, how did you first get into television, Kate? Well, sort of sort of by accident, which, uh, yeah, I mean, I was, so I, I, I went to uni, I, did, I went to Manchester Uni and um, I came back and it was early 90s, I was a recession. I, I didn't, I was, I'm from a working class background and I, I didn't know anyone who worked in any kind of middle class job, let alone telly. I didn't really know what to do or how to, you know, and I wasn't that sure what I wanted to do either, to be fair. So young, um, aren't you, at that point? Yeah, exactly. So I, so I was temping. I joined some temp agencies and I was doing all sorts of different office jobs, cleaning, whatever I could get. And um, one day this uh, temp agency called Office Angels said to me, oh, you know, would you like to go and work at Ardman Animations um, on reception for, for two weeks? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Um, and Arvin was quite a small company then. I think I was employee number 30 or something. And um, and then I ended up, and I went to temp there on reception and ended up staying four years. Um, <laughs> and my and because of that, my first ever credit in this industry was as a production assistant on Chicken Rum, which was ah. quite exciting. But, I was, but, but, but when I look back on it, I do think, had I not been sent there just as a temp, that was quite random. You know, there was no, that was luck really. Um, and then obviously I got in there and they liked me and, and whatever. But it's it, it I was I when I reflect on it, I do think had that not happened, would I have even got into this industry? You know, how would it have happened? Because I didn't have any confidence, I didn't have any connections. Um, so yeah, so it's quite scary to look back and think that that the, the first step was luck and not anyone showing me the way in. Yeah, yeah. What did you study at university? English. English and I, I, I noticed I, I've been listening to a lot of your your podcasts and someone else said she said I wouldn't recommend um studying media study doing media studies you know do do a sort of do geography or English or whatever and I I listened to it and I was like I 100% agree with that it's like you know that nobody ever asks you for a start what you did at university and the older you get people don't even ask you if you've been to university no, no, nobody cares anymore and um, uh, which is a good thing because at the time when I started you you had to have a degree to be, yeah. become a runner yeah 
yeah you know a massive barrier for people who wanted to to work in the industry but then ironically you you know you meet other people and and who didn't go to university and they did all right so it's it's interesting just to kind of hear people's difference uh entry into the industry and there's some of the things and, and of course the problem is the problem you see i still like student loans were just coming in when i went to uni but most of it was on a grant so I didn't leave university with loads and loads of debt. You know, I think it was like two grand or something. Um, but I, I also wondered if today, if you're gonna, if you if you haven't got middle class parents who are funding it, and you're going to end up in for forty grand debt, whether I would recommend going to university. Yeah, don't go. Don't go. Yeah, you know. But actually, you're probably better off just getting in and getting getting a job. You know, whatever it is. Um, so yeah. Nowadays, you don't need a degree, do you, to to get in? You can just start from work experience. Exactly. And that's the way it always should have been. And I think that that's what broadcasters have tried. This is one of the ways they've tried to sort of um, attack the whole kind of inclusivity thing is you're not going to crack it if you insist that everyone you employ has got a degree. You know, I was very, very fortunate to have gone and done that, you know, um, without any parental support. But, you know, it's I'd like to think that I could have got into this industry without having, you know, had a degree. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a tough one, isn't it? Now, Kate, I love the fact that you are very proudly rooted in the nations and regions in Bristol. Tell me, though, does working in senior management based in Bristol add an extra layer of challenge for you? Because traditionally, the powers that be, you know, ran things from London. Or do you find that now you actually have a regional advantage because you're so connected with your community? I think it's an advantage and I think there's lots of things that have changed in the last couple of years that have made it an advantage. It would not always have been. And there were cert certainly times in my career when I was in more junior roles where people would say to me, oh, if you were serious about your career, you'd go and do a stint in London. I mean, that was that was what everyone was told. Mm -hmm. And I just I didn't I, could, I didn't I didn't feel I could afford it for a start. You know, I don't know how young people who are APs, I don't know how they can afford to live in London. So I didn't do it. And actually, the, the, the kind of slightly sad thing is that it, because of that, it did take my career a bit longer to, you know, to accelerate. You know, I was an AP for many, many years. I was a researcher for many, many years. It didn't happen quickly. And I do, you know, but but I don't regret that. But I think that I think what's changed is um, firstly is working for Channel 4 because before lockdown and covid um they'd already opened these brilliant bases you know around the country so i live i've always lived in bristol i'm a bristolian and i've now got a channel 4 office that i that i can go to you know i'm, I'm officially based here that is so exciting you know if someone had said to me even five years ago you're going to be a comet who lives and works in bristol i'd have i wouldn't have believed it yeah. so you know channel four you know it sounds a bit party line but they have done an amazing thing actually by opening those hubs um, definitely it's, it's funny because i i'm of the generation where i came down to london because there were no indies there were no regional indies there was yeah. just itv in manchester and and that was it and and so even having a channel four in leeds when i go up to visit family it's so exciting to see that there yeah i know and, and the Leeds is so exciting. I mean, it is going to be like another London, you know, it's going to be as big and, and as vibrant and it's going to be the heart of everything in the same way. But we've got we've got now two, 200 people working outside of London for Channel 4 and a lot of commissioners, several, um, you know, we've got three or four in Bristol, you know, loads in Leeds, you know, that's 
that's fantastic. We've now got a head of department. My boss, Joe Street, is in Glasgow. You know, that's a really senior level decision maker. So I think I think so. Yeah, I think Channel Four has done something quite incredible. That's actually going to going to change the industry. Um, how it would feel if I worked for another broadcaster, I don't know, because you know this is this is this is the only you know comed role I've done. But um, yeah, no. So that's exciting. But I also think that uh, COVID and lockdown has radically changed everything. So that it's now it's kind of democratised the whole kind of development pitching process for for out of London indies. Um, you know, the whole Zoom thing has changed things for a start because you don't have to get on a train to London. You don't have to give up a whole day to do a couple of meetings with a couple of commissioning editors. You can just hop on Zoom. The meetings are shorter. You know, people can't really say no to them. You know, you, yeah, commissioners great. were trapped in their houses. There's, there's no way, nowhere to hide. Not that I was, I was trying to hide. Um, but it, but it's like you know lots of indies have fed back and said actually this is better we feel we've got equal access to you now and that we're on a we're on level footing and saved everyone so much money as well um, also people with disabilities you know who yeah. struggle to travel into town because of the issues with access again that levels a playing field for them too yeah absolutely yeah I, I hadn't actually thought about that but that's that's a really really good point so um so yeah, and, and talent as well. Actually, you know, if you if you if you if you're an up and coming talent and you're skin, you don't have to keep trying to get to London all the time. You know, on a National Express bus. You know, I remember <laughs> yeah. doing that when I, when I was younger, going for job into you know job interviews or whatever. I, I got shortlisted for a writing scheme. I got up at five o'clock and got the National Express bus because I couldn't afford a train fare. You know, yeah, so um, that's the reality, isn't it? And it's important that you mention these things because I think sometimes people completely don't realize the commitment the extra cost the extra time that people mm. put in just to be able to make it to meet with some of these decisions and it might just be a 30 40 minute little meet, meeting or interview or something or panel or whatever and you've you've planned just taking almost 24 hours you know if you're getting up at five to get a get on the national express bus that's but you know it's a big deal yeah. so i think that um I think that, that it's been a really positive thing. And I think it's, I don't think we're gonna go backwards from that now, you know, I think, I think, you know, it's gonna carry on because, you know, people aren't, people aren't flocking back into offices full time. You know, Channel 4 have said we can spend 50% of our time home working or working wherever. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's been another positive as well. The kind of breaking down of the office culture Mm. Um, I suppose it depends how you're set up because if you have like a really small apartment and you've got kids then being at home all the time might actually really not work for you because you're just always around your life right you want to be kind of out of the office a lot of people like that motivation mm -hmm. of going into a physical office and also creatively bouncing ideas off their peers and stuff you've, you've kind of lost that because unless you're on a zoom call yeah, get to have those interactions. So I think there's definitely space for a almost hybrid model of a bit of both so that it works for everyone and people can reap the benefits of, of both flexible options. I think you're right. I think it's about balance. I mean, I'm one of the people because because I don't have kids and, you know, I, I have a lot of peace and quiet at home and, um, you know, I, it's been really good for me. But, you know, I I can't imagine what it must be like to try and homeschool at the same time as doing everything else. So um, I think you're right. I think that balance that we're all going to get, fingers crossed, is going to be is, is going to make us all more productive and a bit less stressed, I think.
Yeah, um, hopefully. Tell me, what are some of the advantages of living and working outside of London? Because this is going to be so exciting for people that, you know, you are a living, breathing example that it can be done and you can stay where you want to be and, and still be successful. I think um, the advantages are, there's a big creative advantage. So, so, so for example, I'm, I've commissioned, I'm looking after three series that are coming out of Wales uh, this year. There's Great House Giveaway, Sarah Beanie's New Life in the Country, um, and The Perfect Pitch, which is a kind of camping format. And, and, I, and I've commissioned a few other Welsh-based things that haven't been announced yet. And I was just, you know, when I think about how, why that's happened, it's because I live here, you know, it's, it's, it's because I knew these people already, because I'd obviously taken some jobs in Wales as well as in Bristol. So there's a kind of a corridor between Wales and Bristol, you know, people tend to take jobs in, in both places. So all Bristolians will spend a certain amount of time working in Wales and vice versa. But um, so I'd worked for quite a few Welsh Indies. Well, boom, Cymru for a start, you know, where I was creative director. Um, and because of that, I knew how brilliant these people are. You know, I know how talented and resourceful and creative they are. And I, I'm, I've never questioned whether an out of London indie can deliver. You know, I would not, I don't question whether Quarell can deliver 60 episodes of Great House Giveaway. Whereas I wonder if I'd always lived and worked in London, if I would have that mindset. I might not. I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are many of my London based colleagues, you know, who I, I, they all commission all, all over the UK. But I just think my really serious passion, you know, to, to commission out of Bristol and Wales comes from the fact that I, I live here. But also I, these are colleagues of mine that I've been working with for maybe 20 years, you know, that I trust. And, you know, I know they're brilliant and I know that London Indies aren't better than them you know so I think that there's that and that's a that's a kind of creative benefit to channel four really because it means that through commissioners like me and others who are based in Leeds and you know we're widening the pool of, of our suppliers that can only be a good thing that can only mean that we end up with better shows you know what what if great has giveaway hadn't happened you know what what a loss that would be to channel four you know um so I think that I think there's a benefit to me, but I think there's also a benefit to the channel. And that's why it's incredibly smart. You know, it was it was Alex's kind of baby, really, for all the UK. And it's it's so smart because that's how you make change. You accelerate change by having commissioners who live and work and have always worked in the nations and regions. You know, that's how you do it. And it's working and it's just going to get better and better, I think. It is. It's so exciting. I mean, goodness, I remember having to move back down to London to get work because it, it just was nothing outside of you know there's nothing in Yorkshire and um it's funny because someone was saying to me the, the other day with all this investment in the nations and regions Rhea, are you not tempted to move to Yorkshire and it's like no because my whole life's in London <laughs> my whole life is in London that's where I you know I made it my home um but it's it's wonderful to see the investment and the commitment that's been made across the industry in the nations and regions and and yeah. it's just great to see the, the, the programs that you're commissioning and that they're being nominated for BAFTAs I mean it's just one massive success story isn't it it is it really is it's kind of it's kind of like a Cinderella story in a way you know it, it, it's it's kind of the Indies kind of bloomed you know Sean Ed's employing three times as many people you know she's she I don't I don't know I don't think she, I, in fact she's not going to open an office anywhere else she's she is going to stay in cricket in Snowdonia she's decided which is just brilliant because everyone's obviously asked her which oh, are you going to open a Cardiff office that's the obvious question she's like no, I don't think so. I've, I've done series one successfully from here, you know, 
Um, yeah, so why, why change it? Yeah, and it's funny because yeah. I was talking to Kay Meller, the writer Kay Meller, who's from Yorkshire. And, you know, 20 odd years ago, she really felt the pull to come to London, but she held her ground and stayed in Yorkshire. And she's got Roland Productions that are based up in Leeds. And, and she, you know, to this day, they're still based up in Leeds. And she's so proud of that. And I was saying yeah. to her, it's just amazing that you stood there because now, look, you're proving that the talent is there. The yeah. ideas are there. And now it's like the industry is waking up to, to, to what's around the country, you know. I mean, yeah. because you're so passionate about championing commissioning for the nations and regions. I mean, how do you how do you champion that ethos in the teams that you manage and and what steps can people listening who employ people you know what can they take to make their workforce more diverse I think um I mean I, I don't directly line manage anyone myself actually but I think what broadcasters can do and, and managers can do who are hiring is don't hire in your own image I think that's what people used to do they felt comfortable with the person who'd gone to maybe gone to the same uni as them or dressed the same way that they dressed or had the same kind of references or, or maybe even lived in the same place um so I think that that's a kind of kind of big thing is you know make a make a conscious effort not to just employ people who are just like you yeah. um I think I think it's also about you know we've got to stop judging people on the way they speak you know accents have become quite a, a, a hot topic in channel four probably in the kind of wider industry um so so what's what ha what's happened happened to me in my career has been quite interesting because I you know I'm from a working class background my mum was a hairdresser um and, you know, I had a Bristolian accent when I was a kid and, and in time, you know, I kind of watered that down a little bit when I went to university. I was in Manchester, so that changed my accent a bit anyway. But then when I started working in telly, I just didn't feel all of that comfortable, you know, um, not at Arbonne, I have to say. They, they employ a lot of Bristolians, but um, but in other places. Uh, so I so I, so I changed, you know, I've, 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 I, you, you could, unless I'd had a glass of wine, I was with my family. You wouldn't be able to tell that I was Bristolian. But the downside, and that's upset, I find that quite sad, you know, it kind of makes, does make me feel sad when I think about it. However, when I'm with my family, I, I speak however I like, but the downside of that is now accents are so fashionable. So, you know, if anything, I'd say young people are like, listen to me, you know, I'm from wherever. And so now I get people saying to me things like, no, I don't, don't think you are a Bristolian. You're not a Bristolian. You? <laughs> They're questioning you. But you haven't got an accent. And, mm. and I don't think you are from a working class background, are you? And, and you, people, people can be quite offensive, you know. Yeah. So it's like, I, I've kind of got, I, I'm in this situation where it's like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You know, it was yeah. the industry that made me change so because I felt I had to fit in become a chameleon or whatever mm. um and now that that same industry some people are saying nah you're not working you're not Bristolian you know don't believe it and it's like that that's yeah. that's wrong you know people have got to stop stop looking at the clothes stop looking at the accent the cultural references you know you've got to and I don't I don't know how you do that but they're, they're, there's a lot of people in in telly trying to work all of that out isn't there people like it's difficult yeah. because you you know in all sectors there are social codes that we adopt to be able to fit in and immerse ourselves in the in the yeah. culture right and and definitely in our industry you know speaking articulately is absolutely one of those things but you're right that if you are proud to come from the nations and regions you're going to have a regional accent but yeah for so long we it's it's kind of not been cool to have a, a, a an accent which is kind of bonkers because that's who you are that makes you who you are right so yeah I, I get your kind of 
dilemma in that the you know the people from home feel like they can't connect with you because you've lost that part of yourself but that doesn't mean you aren't Kate right yeah still a Bristolian yeah well my family aren't conscious of it at all they 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 don't they don't really care (laughs) they don't they don't sort of go around making judgments on people's accents you know Mm. um so I think I think I think that's that's one thing is is you know, we need to just be less judgmental and people can be get quite narrow about what diversity means. You know, I've yeah, yeah, there is that yeah, I have this all the time. People like, assume it's, a, it's the, a race thing and yeah, so much more than that. It's it's uh, the regional accent, it's the class, it's the disability, it's the sexual orientation, yeah. there is lots of different things. Things and I think inclusivity is probably a better word actually than diversity. I think I think it's kind of clearer what it actually means. But um so yeah. What, what does inclusivity mean to you, Kate? Someone I, asked me this earlier and I thought, oh that's 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 interesting. I think it means it it literally means everyone so what you know what you'll what you'll find now is there's reverse snobbery going on and I've been guilty of this myself in the past and I've tried to sort of train myself out of it but it's that thing of uh, oh you went you know people feel slightly picked on because they went to Cambridge or you know because they do speak well or whatever you know or because they know a bit Latin or whatever um and I think the inclusivity means everybody is included you know you're not it's not just about certain underrepresented groups it's like you have to be accepting of everybody um and I think it's a slightly bigger broader thing and it's not about targeting a specific problem and and saying right we need to get women equal pay or or whatever it's more about let's just stop judging everybody that (laughs) that that we're working with you know let's let's not pick on the person who went to Cambridge either you know that's not about it being a kind of level fair playing field that's not what I mean it's about you know how we how we treat each other and how we stop making judgments again on accents where you went to university if you went to university so yeah yeah for me it's inclusivity it's kind of like you know everyone has a seat at the table but but also has the autonomy to make business decisions and are also empowered to have access to money to actually go and do the job and and take risks and deliver an impact because I think with with some organizations with inclusivity like you might have different people representing underrepresented groups but they're not necessarily empowered to impact change or to make business decisions so that kind of is fake inclusion for me yeah and I think it's 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 about the level you know it's like it's all very well having entry-level jobs and entry-level training schemes but it's about accepting that the kind of you know the chief exec or you know the the people right at the top can be from any background Um, and I think that that can be that's a bit of a problem is that there's so much great stuff happening and great work being done but you know how how far how far can people go you know um from 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 sort of you know less privileged backgrounds you know um, yeah. but I know they're kind of looking hard at that you know they're working hard on it yeah and ultimately the more diverse your senior level is the more diverse their teams are going to be the stories that have been told are going to be like everybody wins right and in this modern age where there is so so much competition for eyeballs on screen you know you've got to create shows that speak to 
lots of different people and you know a lot of the streaming platforms are doing very well at that at the minute because they've just got diversity embedded in the programs that they make it's not it, it feels so kind of authentic it's not like been shoved down your throat like what did you think of Bridgerton I loved it I loved it actually me too and I watched it and I remember thinking I love this because I've just realised Queen Charlotte's black and that's not even a thing. It, that's kind of cool because we very rarely see people of colour in positions of stature and here they are. Yeah, yeah. Like, and and so Channel, 5, Channel 5 have just done a version, I did, I meant to, I haven't, of the Anne Boleyn story with the yes, black. Jodie Turner-Smith, I need to watch I that. wait to watch it, I can't wait. Oh, so. yeah. um, and that's a well-told, that's an often told, well-trodden story, you know, but all of a sudden they've given it this fresh kind of new exciting perspective and I'm like, because I'm, I'm a bit of a history buff anyway, you know, so I know oh, all, yeah. all about, you know, all of that. But and I've watched loads of Anne Boleyn things and read books, but I want to watch it because they're doing something different with that story. You know, um, apparently Ben Fry's a, a bit obsessed with Anne Boleyn. Um, <laughs> when I was when I was developing, it was always like always mention Anne Boleyn if, if you're pitching oh, really? a history idea. Oh, isn't that funny? She's my favourite queen as well. How funny is my favourite queen as well. Oh, there you go. Then see, he knew that we all had a hidden interest in her. We we're all intrigued. Yeah, but you know, what a great, what what a good good decision and why not, you know, so, yeah. So thinking about women and people that inspire you, tell me about some of the women that you've met throughout your career who you most admire and why. Um, I, do you know, uh, the mo I mean, I've had, I have never had an official mentor, like I've never gone through a scheme or, and I really regret that actually. And I would say to people, just do it. You know, it's quite difficult because I thought about it many times and I even talked to bosses about it. And then the busyness of work just got in the way and I didn't make finding a mentor a, a priority. Mm. Um, so I regret that and, and I, I'd like to find one now, but unfortunately the higher you get, the hard, actually weirdly, the harder it is. So if there's anyone out there who'd like to mentor me, I'd love it. Um, oh, well, we'll get you on the Wonder Women Mentoring Programme, Kate. Yeah, Thanks. yeah, no, yeah. Looking right to me. 100% <laughs> to do that, yeah. Um, but, people have but people unofficially mentor you, don't they, you know? Yes. And I had a great boss at BBC Studios called Kate Beatham who kind of got me into got me excited about development you know rather than just production um and she gave me my first kind of development development ap role um and she was a kind of you know she's been on a kind of unofficial mental we're not you know when we don't see each other as often now she's got kids and, and whatever but certainly at that time she was a, a kind of unofficially mentored me and she was probably the person who uh, let me know that it was okay to be ambitious that it was okay to say actually I'm, I want to be head of development you know that's where I'm aiming for or you know uh, whereas before I was definitely one of those women who if asked what they wanted to be would sort of shy away from from the the, the bold answer you know um and she kind of you know she, she yeah she unofficially opened up my mind to being a bit more ambitious um getting really excited and involved in development because that can be quite career changing actually it's quite difficult for people at lower levels in production to make relationships with commissioners to learn how broadcasters work and all of that but as soon as you're a development producer then you're you know you should be going along to pitch meetings you know with with your bosses and stuff um, and that opens up a whole kind of new perspective on telly so she she kind of did that for me um I've had a few you know I've had men mentor me as well um you know I've had some really good male bosses um but yeah no I, I I'd, I'd love to I'd love to find I'd love to find a mentor and I wish I'd prioritized it more actually um but in, you were asking about inspirational women yeah the 
the, the people I'm finding really inspirational at the moment are people like the, the head director of talent at Channel 4, Charlotte Black, Vic Roy, Babita, you know, and I know that there's, um, I don't know her very well, but I listen to her, her podcast, Donna Tabra at the BBC, oh. and lots of people speak so highly about her efforts to, to help people in the industry from different backgrounds. And they, that, that group of people have actually been absolute heroes in the last year they've just worked tirelessly to, to, they really sort of desperately cared about what about the freelancers is does this mean that opportunities that were growing are going to shrink again for people from you know different backgrounds and they just worked their socks off basically trying to not not let us be dragged backwards and to keep going forwards and you know to keep 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 the drive going and I know that you know Charlotte in particular has been you know really active and really successful in helping people particularly on the social inclusion side you know helping people from less privileged backgrounds get into Channel 4 you know so I think they're really inspirational and they don't get nominated for BAFTAs and clapped as much <laughs> sometimes as the rest of us but they've, they've they're totally wowing me at the moment. Oh, um, they're behind then, the scenes aren't they doing the work yeah yeah but they really mean it they all really mean it you know mm. um and yeah and the other the other people I'm finding quite inspirational at the moment are the younger women in telly yeah. it's like I love being around 20 somethings females in telly because they don't they're not they this they probably do have a bit of imposter syndrome but they don't seem to be frightened to say I want to be a channel controller or whatever yeah. and they seem to be kind of different to, to what I was like when I was in my 20s that they, they kind of like they're not waiting for anyone else to sort of you know say yes you're allowed to do this or you know I'm not going to laugh at you for wanting that you know it's it's perfectly legitimate um I remember once when I was in when I was head of development a male development producer asking a female development AP, you know, where where she wanted, you know, what she saw herself doing next. And she said, to be honest, I'd, I'd quite like to be a commissioner in, in three or four years. And he laughed at her. Mm. Um, and she kind of, she, she looked away and, you know, and I just thought, that's it. That's unfortunately, this was a quite a few years ago, but that's unfortunately what happens sometimes is that you, you know, you, I think women have felt they couldn't say, I'm actually aiming that high. You know, I'm not, I'm, you know, people, women can be very modest about how, how high they think they're going to go. And But the younger women in the industry now don't feel like that. You know, they feel like they're going, no, that's where I'm going. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say it. And, and so, yeah, they're inspiring that. me. Yeah, I love that that ambition. We have a, a lady, a young lady on the uh, Wonder Women Mentoring Program. And one of her big goals is to be a commissioner. And she's like, oh, yeah. yeah. I and I was like, you absolutely will. You know, you go for it. We, we don't doubt that for a second. And it was so yeah. good to hear that, you know. It's, yeah. it's important. Yeah, but but I don't think it, people always have, women have heard it enough in the past. And I'm really glad it's changing, really glad. Now, I always like to wrap up my interviews, Kate, by asking people for their inspirational words of wisdom. So Kate, tell me, what is your message to the women of the world? My message to the women in, of the world is don't, uh, don't wait for permission. Don't ask for permission and don't wait for permission because you don't need anyone else's buy-in or, you know, go sign for you to go and do whatever you want to do. Um, another person, uh, and I think it's really important as well, another bit of advice is look for heroes outside of your industry as well. Um, when I was a student, I made a film about the female boxer Jane Couch 
um, and she, a short film, and she had to fight really hard. You know, she had to take the, the Boxing Board of Control to court just to become a boxer and to fight professionally. You know, through that, I've never forgotten her and the inspiration she was to me. And I imagine her kind of with her gloves on, you know, metaphorically fighting the Boxing Board of Control in the court, but then literally fighting and sweating it out with, with people in the ring. And I just sort of think, yeah, you know, she she was she's an inspiration for me and I think that it's really important that women look outside of telly for their inspiration and realize that actually actually other women might have even had it a bit harder you know had to fight even harder so yeah that's what I would say don't ask for permission and don't wait for permission just do it oh fantastic thank you Kate it's been lovely chatting to you today I've loved it, Ria. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. Hopefully you've got more of an insight into what it's like to work at commissioner level in television, along with some invaluable life lessons and words of wisdom. You can find out more information about working in TV and what we do at wonderwomentv.com. And you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at wonderwomentvuk. Finally, this podcast was produced by me, Ria Hebden. Stay safe, stay positive and thanks for listening. Thank you.